0: This is the JEGM Show, Exploring the World Through a Revolutionary Lens. I'm Jacobin, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we're exploring the epitome of class-conscious writing, and that is Mr. Vladimir Lenin's State and Revolution. And we're going to be going over Chapter 1 and some uh, thoughts about uh, different parts of the novel— And I'd like to give some background sort of to what state and revolution is to people who don't know about what it is. And it essentially is a work of political theory by revolutionary uh, Bolshevik Vladimir Lenin, who describes the role of the state in society and the necessity of proletarian revolution and the... uh, Sort of weaknesses of social democracy In achieving a revolution to establish the dictatorship of the proletariat And I know a lot of you this might seem foreign language And you know this stuff might not be of your take And we'll definitely go um, over that stuff once we get there But essentially Lenin began to write it while he was in exile in Switzerland in 1916, um, and essentially it kind of covers over the Soviets, which was a legislative body of workers and peasants, which was essentially the de facto government of Petrograd and many smaller cities in Russia at the time. And so the Russian public was pretty much... uh, lost total faith in the continuation of you know, Russia's involvement in World War I and their economic difficulties that the Imperial War brought on to them. And so, on November 7th, the Congress of Soviets elected a coalition of Bolsheviks, Socialist Revolutionaries, and Mensheviks to govern the nation. And through the Red Guards, paramilitary organizations of revolutionary workers, sailors, and soldiers, the Soviet government stormed the Winter Palace and abolished the provisional government. And so the revolution was not accepted among all uh, Russians at the time. It wasn't until the follow-up of the Russian Civil War that the Bolshevik government was able to legitimize its claim to rule. And so, a issue that Lenin covers in the State of Revolution was the right of nations to secession, which is something that's covered in a lot of Republican uh, doctrines, such as that of the Declaration of Independence in the United States and the Declaration of Rights of Men and, and uh, Citizens in France. And so, during the composition of this book, the Mensheviks of Georgia declared independence. And they declared themselves the Democratic Republic of Georgia. And so, by November 25th, the 1917 Constitutional Assembly was elected with a majority of positions going to the Socialist Revolutionary Party, which had made a right-turn after the revolution with most of the left uh, social revolutionaries joining the Bolsheviks. And essentially, by 1918, the Constitutional Convention was dissolved. And so, Lenin then jumps in to the picture as, you know, the leading factor of the Bolshevik Party and the revolutionary Soviets made up of workers and peasants. And so, he begins with class society and the state, which is chapter one. And so, he begins to define what makes the state. But right here, he sort of goes over uh, sort of the mainstream intellectual you know, the bourgeois intellectuals and the way they're sort of uh, invalidating Marxism to uh, a lesser extent rather than accepting it as a revolutionary doctrine of theory, a grassroots analysis of class struggle, of human nature, uh, dialectical materialism, the development of society and civilization and the exploitative essence and nature of the capitalist mode of production and so lenin starts off by saying quote what is now happening to Marx's doctrine has in the course of history often happened to the doctrines of other revolutionary thinkers and leaders of oppressed classes struggling for emancipation During the lifetime of great revolutionaries, the oppressing classes have visited relentless persecution on them and received their teaching with the most savage hostility the most furious hatred, the most ruthless campaign of lies and slanders. After their death, attempts are made to turn them into harmless icons, canonize them, and surround their names with a certain halo for the consolation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping them, while at the same time emasculating and vulgarizing the real essence of their revolutionary theories and blunting their revolutionary edge. At the present time, the bourgeoisie and the opportunists within the labor movement are cooperating in this work of adulterating Marxism. They omit, obliterate, and distort the revolutionary side of its teaching, its revolutionary soul. They push to the foreground and extol what is, or seems, acceptable to the bourgeoisie. All the social chauvinists are now Marxists, joking aside. And more and more do German bourgeois professors, erstwhile specialists in the demolition of Marx, speak now of the national German Marx, who, they aver, has educated the labor unions which are so splendidly organized for conducting the present predatory war. And so what Lenin says of Marx's revolutionary theory And, uh, you know, the attempts by intellectuals to conceal the true revolutionary spirit of Marxism is sort of something that we're starting to see uh, in the modern days. A lot of it is with stuff like Pan African movements, you know, black power movements. They become concealed and sort of uh, laminated into some sort of liberal. Uh, you know, uh, mainstream corporate agenda. And we see that now with stuff like Black Lives Matter, who, uh, you know, had its source in a lot of, you know, black Marxists and, you know, using their liberation principles in assessing with, you know, police brutality and, uh, you know, black self-determination. And just recently, uh, Black Lives Matter condemned the uh, embargo and sanctions on uh, the Republic of Cuba. And all the, uh, you know, blue-check liberals in the comments obviously are going all out and, you know, parading, you know, against that of socialism in Cuba. Because, again there has been attempts to conceal Black Lives Matter, you know, as a mainstream, liberal, uh, tame, uh, you know, movement, mass movement, rather than a revolutionary class struggle, you know, against the white-owning bourgeois class of the United States. And obviously those, there, there's more examples like that, you know, a lot of, especially like, You know, as I mentioned, you know, uh, black liberation movements, like the Black Panther Party. uh, You know, there's been attempts to conceal their revolutionary heritage. Uh, People like uh, Fred Hampton, you know, he was a socialist. He was a revolutionary Marxist, and people are trying to hide that. Same thing happened with, like, Colin Kaepernick, who paraded around, you know, the abolition of prisons, the abolition of police... And, you know, liberals started a sort of uh, paraded around him, uh, sort of concealing his, you know, revolutionary, uh, you know, ideas and sort of just parading around, you know, free speech and, you know, whatever the liberal bourgeois intellectual uh, bribes, you know, upon against uh every other person that it comes across you know it's not something that you know they can withhold because they have no materialistic reality they have no materialistic ideas at all it's based off of just blind idealism uh to whatever they just find that can preserve the current you know capitalist condition and obviously, these attempts aren't new; they have been around since the time of Lenin. And it's good to see that uh, our dear friend uh, covers it very well. And so Lenin starts to examine Angle. Uh, he starts to examine Angle's work uh, in the origin of the family, private property, and the state. And he quotes Angle's on uh his historical analysis of the state he says quote the state is therefore by no means a power imposed on society from the outside just as little it, it, is it the reality of the moral idea the image and reality of reason as hegel asserted Rather, it is a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that this society has become entangled in an insoluble contradiction with itself, that it is cleft into irreconcilable antagonisms, which it is powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms' classes with conflicting economic interests may not consume themselves... And society in sterile struggle, a power apparently standing above society becomes necessary, whose purpose is to moderate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of, quote, order. And this power arising out of society, but placing itself above it and increasingly separating itself from it is the state. So here we have, expressed in all its clearness, the basic idea of Marxism on the question of the historical role and the meaning of the state. The state is the product and the manifestation of the irreconcilability of class antagonisms. The state arises when, where, and to the extent that the class antagonisms cannot be objectively reconciled. And conversely, the existence of the state proves that the class antagonisms are irreconcealable. It is precisely on this most important and fundamental point that distortions of Marxism arise along two main lines. On the one hand, the bourgeois, and particularly the petty bourgeois, ideologists compelled under the pressure of indisputable historical facts to admit that the state only exists when there are class antagonisms in the class struggle, correct Marx in such a way as to make it appear that the state is an organ for reconciling the classes. According to Marx, the state could neither arise nor maintain itself if a reconciliation of classes were possible. But with the petty bourgeois and philistine professors and publicists, the state, and this frequently on the strength of benevolent references to Marx, becomes a conciliator of the classes. According to Marx, the state is an organ of class domination, an organ of oppression of one class by another. Its aim is the creation of order, which legalizes and perpetrates this oppression by moderating the collisions between the classes. But in the opinion of the petty bourgeois politicians, order means reconciliation of the classes and not oppression of one class by another. To moderate collisions does not mean, they say, to deprive the oppressed classes of certain definite means and methods of struggle for overthrowing the oppressors, but to practice reconciliation. And so again, this is this arises during a particular stage of development. The state isn't something that resonates above human nature or is a part of human nature. It arises and stems from, you know, different stages of development, which, when you study the evolution uh, of civilization itself, you know, the state arises from, uh, you know, property disputes. Of, you know, ancient Mes- Mesopotamian civilizations where, you know, the owning class and the working class, again, disputed the, uh, you know, the ownership of the means of production and obviously the state arised to conceal this such antagonism so that the... The mainstream consensus could ultimately just rule whatever goes, you know, abides through the state, uh, you know, is, quote unquote, justice. And obviously, the state itself follows in the hands of the owning class, you know, the, the mentality, the ideas, uh, the reality you know, the subjective reality of the owning class becomes objective reality based off the jurisdiction and the rule of the state and the legitimize that reality. The state perpetrates, uh, you know, that narrative of the owning class and sort of masks it and parades it around as order and justice and freedom, you know, and, and, You know, Lenin points this out and angles as well. You know, he's the one that sort of discovered this uh, idea and concept and put it down to paper and perfected it. And, you know, this sort of idea of the state arises, uh, you know, as a challenge for the proletarian who must, you know, take hold Of the forces that the state itself control. And, you know, overthrow the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And install the dictatorship of the proletariat. And it must possess some sort of state apparatus. In order to, you know, put down and uh, legitimize the rule. Well, put down the, you know, the counter-revolutionaries. And... To install and legitimize the rule of the working class. And this can't, you know, Marx argues that this can't really be done outside of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is, you know, a dispute that anarchists and Marxists have, you know, continually to this day. But then Lenin goes on to give an example of uh, the 1917 Russian Revolution. And he sort of talks about how the socialist revolutionaries and the Mensheviks uh, sank to the petty bourgeois theory of reconciliation of the classes by the state. And so that's sort of the distinction between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks and the social revolutionaries that, you know, the state is not a reconciliation of classes, but it is rather an organ of domination and oppression of one class by another. And it's aimed to create order, which you know obviously perpetrates oppression by moderating these collisions between the classes. And obviously to moderate this collision does not mean to deprive the oppressed classes of certain definite means and methods of struggle for overthrowing the oppressors but rather it is just to practice reconciliation. And the state is, again, an organ of domination of a definite class which cannot be reconciled with its antipode, which is, you know, the class opposed to it. And that's just something that petty bourgeois Democrats just never understand or have the ability to understand. Its attitude towards the state is one of the most telling proofs that our socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks are not socialist at all, which we Bolsheviks have always always maintained, but petty bourgeois democrats with a near socialist phraseology. And so he's sort of dissing the social revolutionaries and the Mensheviks, you know, by claiming that they're uh, fake socialists and that, you know, the Bolsheviks, we are the real, you know, Marxist. We follow the doctrine. And we put it to practice. They may f- say they follow the doctrine, but they don't put it to practice. And so, Lenin goes on to discusses ab- and he-, he goes on to discuss about, uh, you know, in part two, special bodies of armed men, prisons, etc. So this is more about you know, bureau- bureaucratic means of uh, concealing and. Dominating the classes and the class struggle and the way the state does it, you know, through prisons, through the military, uh, whatever it deems necessary to uh, legitimize its rule. And so, Angles continues, quote, In contrast with the ancient organizations of the gens, the first distinguishing characteristic of the state is the grouping of the subjects of the state on a territorial basis. Such a grouping seems natural to us, but it came after a prolonged and costly struggle against the old form of tribal or gentilic society. Quoting angles, The second is the establishment of a public force which is no longer absolutely identical with the population organizing itself as an armed power. This special public force is necessary because a self-acting armed organization of the population has become impossible since the cleavage of society into classes. This public force exists in every state. It consists not merely of armed men, but of material appendages, prisons, and repressive institutions of all kinds, of which Gentilic society knows nothing. So, Engels develops the concept of that power, which is termed the state, which is a power arising from society, but placing itself above it and becoming more and more separated from it. So, what does this power mainly consist of? Well... It consists of special bodies of armed men who have at their disposal prisons, etc. We are justified in speaking of special bodies of armed men because the public power peculiar to every state is not absolutely identical with the armed population with its self-acting armed organization. Like all the great revolutionary thinkers, Engels tries to draw the attention of the class-conscious workers to that very fact which to prevailing Philistinianism appears least of all worthy of attention. Most common is sanctified by solid, indeed, one might say, petrified, prejudices. A standing army and police are the chief instruments of state power, but can this be otherwise? From the point of view of the vast majority of Europeans at the end of the 19th century whom Angles was addressing, and who had neither lived through nor closely observed a single great revolution, this cannot be otherwise. They cannot understand at all what this self-acting armed organization of the population means. To the question, whence arose the need for special bodies of armed men standing above society and becoming separated from it, police and standing army, the Western European and Russian Philistines are inclined to answer with a few phrases borrowed from Spencer or uh, Mikhailovsky, sorry if I uh, butchered that, by reference to the complexity of social life, the differentiation of functions, and so forth. Such a reference seems scientific and effectively doles the senses of the average man, obscuring the most important and basic fact, namely, the breakup of society in irreconcealabil- irreconcealably uh, antagonistic classes. Without such a breakup, the self-acting armed organization of the population might have differed from the primitive organization of a herd of monkeys grasping sticks, or of primitive men, or men uh, united in a tribal form of society by its complexity, its high technique, and so forth, but would still have been impossible. It is impossible now because society in the period of civilization is broken up into antagonistic and, indeed, irreconcilably antagonistic classes, which, if armed in a self-acting manner, would come into armed struggle with each other. A state is formed, a special power is created in the form of special bodies of armed men, and every revolution by shattering the state apparatus demonstrates to us how the ruling class aims at the restoration of the special bodies of armed men at its service, and how the oppressed class tries to create a new organization of this kind capable of serving not the exploiters but the exploited. And so ultimately, this sort of displays and showcases how, again, uh, different public forces, policemen, uh, military, you know, think of National Guard, militia, whatever it is, it serves to oppress. It serves to uh, allow the continuation of exploitation. And uh, it sort of masks itself and parades itself, you know, being that of the working class, you know, it it, it seems to perpetrate this narrative, you know, that policemen, uh, you know, military men, you know, our family people, they're one of us and, you know, protect and serve, you know, they, they serve our community, but in reality, they, they protect and serve the interest of the ruling class. They, they protect and serve the interest of accumulating capital. And that ultimately is the uh, the definite proposition that Lenin and Engels puts forth in recognizing that uh, legitimate rule of these such, you know, these, these public forces that a lot of, you know, petty bourgeois Democrats, you know, see, uh, well, can't really see, you know, beyond the, uh, you know, their limited scope of reasoning of that of, you know, the ruling class. But going back to uh, Engel's discourse, he points out that places like in North America, the public power is weak, which he has in mind an exception that is rare in capital society as he speaks about parts of North America in its pre-imperialist days where the free colonists predominated. So ultimately before, uh, I guess, like... Before Britain and uh, France and Spain sort of had a tighter grip on their own colonies. Uh, I would exclude Spain because Spain had a pretty tight grip on their colonies, uh, mostly in like Mexico, South America. But then once you get more, I mean, once you get more into, you know, Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, those areas. Uh, you know, you have much more sparsely populated, uh, uh, you know, ranchers. And ultimately, that's, I think those are the people that Lenin is referencing. And, you know, the colonists of, uh, you know, New England and Virginia, and obviously more French colonists in the Ohio River Valley, who ultimately, because they were, you know, an ocean away from, Uh, you know, their motherland, they ultimately had much more, uh, uh, you know, self-determination and much more autonomy over uh, their own uh, land and, you know, their, their own territories. And so Engels writes it, the public power, grows stronger, however, in proportion as the class antagonisms within the state grows sharper, and with the growth in size and population of the adjacent states. We have only to look at our present-day Europe, where class struggle and rivalry and conquest have screwed up the public power to such a pitch that it threatens to devour the whole of society and even the state itself. And so, ultimately, you know, you see that you know the the power of the the public grows stronger in uh, the proportion as uh, antagonisms grow, you know, grow stronger. And this ultimately is a ploy on uh, you know the the petty bourgeois narrative that ultimately uh, puts a. I guess puts a label on the state, you know, being as a you know overbearer of power for centuries. But in reality, the power of the state is correlated with uh, the intensity of class antagonisms. And so, as you see in the uh, the development of capitalism, you know, the intensity of class antagonisms gets much more stronger. And you see more and more middle class, uh, petty bourgeois people, uh, you know, small business owners and whatnot start to fall into the proletarian class. And you start to see such a division in society like you see now, you know, such a wealth gap and ownership gap of both the means of production and of wealth in this nation and around the world that you see such an intensity of class antagonisms, and you see, uh, you know, much more prevalent mass movements against, you know, the top 1%, like we say here in the United States or, you know, wherever you live in the world. And you start to see the power of the state also increase. You know, the idea, the concept of nation-states is something relatively new, you know. We only see that uh, arise... ...from around 18th century Europe. Uh, you know, the the concept of a democratic republic... Uh, ...and just a nation itself, you know, in general. And it sort of correlates with the rise of capitalism. And, you know, as we continue to develop... Uh, ...and, you know, revolutionize the current conditions of capitalism... ...so too does the conditions of the state continue to revolutionize... And you start to see the state exacerbate its power, uh, you know, through the police force and uh, the prison population like that of the United States, where uh, the police now pretty much matches that of a paramilitary status. And our police, uh, you know, overpopulate and disproportionately affect, you know, minority communities and incarcerate them at higher rates than that of, you know, uh, white, uh, people. And you start to see the prison population start to fill up with people with low level offenses. And then you start to see, you know, the prison industrial complex where, I mean, it's pretty, pretty clearly that, you know, the state and, uh, private corporations work hand in hand, uh, you know, to exploit prison labor for, uh, practically slave labor. And, you know, this arises out of the irreconcilable fact uh, that perpetrates society, which is class antagonism. And so we start to move to part three, the state as an instrument for the exploitation of the oppressed class. For the maintenance of a special public force standing above society, taxes and state loans are needed. Quoting Engels, Having at their disposal the public force and the right to exact taxes, the officials now stand as organs of society above society. The free, voluntary respect, which was accorded to the organs of the gentilic form of government, does not satisfy them, even if they could have it. And so special laws are enacted regarding the sanctity and the invisibility, in- in- viability of the officials the shabbiest police servant has more authority than the representative of the clan but even the head of the military power of a civilized state may well envy the least among the chiefs of the clan the unconstrained and uncontested respect which is paid to him Here, the question regarding the privileged position of the officials as organs of state powers clearly stated. The main point is indicated as follows. What is it that places them above society? We shall see how this theoretical problem was solved in practice by the Paris Commune in 1871. And so, as the state arose out of the need to hold class antagonisms in check... But as it is, at the same time, arose in the midst of the conflict of these classes, it is, as a rule, the state of the most powerful, economically dominant class, which by virtue thereof becomes also the dominant class politically, and thus acquires new means of holding down and exploiting the oppressed classes. Not only the ancient and feudal states were organs of exploitation of the slaves and serfs, but... The modern representative state is the instrument of the exploitation of wage labor by capital. By way of exception, however, there are periods when the wearing classes so nearly attain equilibrium that the state power, ostensibly, appearing as the mediator, assumes for the moment a certain independence in relation to both. And so, for example, the absolute monarchies of the 17th century of the Bonapartism of the first and second empires of France and the Bismarck regime in Germany. In a democratic republic, Angles continues, wealth wields its power indirectly, but all the more effectively. First, by means of direct corruption of the officials in the United States. Second, by means of the alliance of the government with the stock exchange, France and the United States. And at the present time, imperialism and the domination of the banks have developed to an unusually fine art. Both these methods of defending and asserting the omnipotence of wealth in democratic republics Of all descriptions. If, for example, uh, in the first months of the Russian Democratic Republic, one might say during the honeymoon of the Union of the Socialists with the Socialist Revolutionaries and the Mensheviks with the bourgeoisie, Mr. Palchinsky obstructed every measure in the coalition cabinet, restraining the capitalists and their war, profiteering their, their plundering of the public treasury by means of army contracts. And if, after his resignation, Mr. Polchinski was rewarded by the capitalists with a soft job carrying a salary of 120,000 rubles per annum. What was this? Direct or indirect bribery. A league of the government with the capitalist syndicates or only friendly relations. The omnipotence of wealth is thus more secure in a democratic republic since it does not depend on the poor political shell of capitalism. A democratic republic is the best possible political shell for capitalism, and therefore, once capital has gained control of this very best shell, it establishes its power so securely, so firmly, that no chains, either of persons or institutions or parties in the bourgeois republic, can shake it. We we must also note that Engels quite definitely regards universal suffrage as a means of bourgeois domination. Universal suffrage, he says, obviously summing up the long experience of German uh, German social democracy is an index of the maturity of the working class. It cannot and never will be anything else but that in the modern state. The petty bourgeois democrats such as our socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks and also their twin brothers, the social chauvinists and opportunists of Western Europe, I'll expect more from universal suffrage. They themselves share, and it's still into the minds of the people, the wrong idea that universal suffrage in the modern state is really capable of expressing the will of the majority of all toilers and of assuring its realization. We can here only note the the uh, wrong idea, only point out that this perfectly clear, exact, and concrete statement by Engels is distorted at every step in the propaganda agitation of the official i.e., the opportunist socialist parties. A detailed analysis of, of all the falseness of this idea, which Engels brushes aside, is given in our further, uh, further account of the views of Marx and Engels on the modern state. A general summary of his views is given by Engels in the most popular of his works in the following words. The state, therefore, has not existed from all eternity. There have been societies which managed without it, which had no conception of the state and state power. At a certain stage of economic development, which was necessarily bound up with the cleavage of society into classes, the state becomes a necessary owning to this cleavage. We are now rapidly approaching a stage in the development of production at which the existence of these classes has not only ceased to be a necessity, but is becoming a positive hindrance to production. They will disappear as inevitably as they arose at an early stage. Along with them, the state will inevitably disappear. The society that organizes production anew on the basis of the free and equal association of the producers will put the whole state machine where it will then belong, in the Museum of Antiques, side by side with the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. It is not often that we find this passage quoted in the propaganda and agitation literature of contemporary social democracy, but even when we do come across it, it is generally quoted in the same manner as one bows before an icon, i.e., it is done merely to show official respect for angles without any attempt to gauge the breadth and depth of revolutionary action presupposed by this relegating of the whole state machine to the Museum of Antiquities. In most cases we do not even find an understanding of what Marx i I'm sorry, what Marx and Engels call the state machine. And so ultimately Lenin Lennon uh, sort of goes uh his own way in uh you know dissing the uh democratic republics and uh, later on he'll get into, you know, parliamentary government. And so he, he you know, he, he puts out a sort of interesting take on stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, bribery. Where, you know, democratic republics seem to find whatever means possible to legalize and legitimize bribery as, you know, legitimate role of politics. You see that in stuff like lobbying in the United States, where essentially corporate power exceeds that of collective, you know, people's power. And not only, you know, electing officials where 9 out of 10 elections in the United States is influenced by the campaign that has, you know, contributed the most amount of money, but it does so through legislative means, by influencing through the means of lobbying and concealing that bribery as legal methods and democratic methods of state power it's absurd and i've i've seen people you know go on about talking about lobbying as you know be, being something not that bad you know oh uh jacobin you know lobbying is actually a a legitimate method and you need to grow up and recognize that it doesn't, you know, exceed what you know your your revolutionary thinkers think. Corp and and you know the state uh, recognizes corporations as legitimate individuals participating in the democratic process, even though it serves to, mitigate and conceal the antagonism between classes. And so the fourth section Lenin talks about the withering array the the excuse me the withering away of the state and violent revolution. Engels' words regarding the withering away of the state enjoy such popularity they uh, they're so often misquoted. And they show us so clearly the essence of the usual adulteration by means of which Marxism is made to look like opportunism that we must dwell on them in detail. Let us quote the whole passage from which they are taken. The proletariat seizes state power and then transforms the means of production into state property. But in doing this, it puts an end to itself as the proletariat. It puts an end to all class differences and to class antagonisms. It puts an end also to the state as the state. Former society, moving-in-class antagonisms, had need of the state, that is, an organization of the exploited class at each period for the maintenance of its external conditions of production, therefore in particular for the forcible holding down of the exploited class in the condition of oppression, slavery, bondage, or serfdom, wage, labor." determined by the existing mode of production the state was the official representative of the society as a whole its embodiment in a visible corporate body but it was the only it was this only in so far as it was the state of the class which itself in its epoch represented society as a whole in ancient times the state of the slave owning citizens in the middle ages of the feudal nobility in our epoch of the bourgeoisie When ultimately it becomes really representative of society as a whole, it makes itself superfluous. As soon as there are no longer any class of society to be held in subjection, as soon as, along with class domination and the struggle for individual existence based on the former anarchy of production, the collisions and the excesses arising from these have also been abolished. There is nothing more to be repressed, and a special repressive force, a state, is no longer necessary. The first act in which the state really comes forward as the representative of society as a whole, the seizure of the means of production in the name of society, is at the same time its last independent act as a state. The interference of a state power in social relations becomes superfluous in one sphere after another, and then becomes dormant of itself. Government over... Government over persons is replaced by the administration of things and the direction of the process of production. The state is not abolished, it withers away. It is from this standpoint that we must appraise the phrase uh, people's free state, both its justification at times for agitational purposes and its ultimate scientific inadequacy which is also uh, the demand of the so-called anarchists that the state should be abolished overnight. And so what Anglos discusses here, ultimately, that class cannot exist without any sort of antagonism, without any sort of repression. If there's nothing to repress, then there's no need for the state. The state cannot exist unless it represses a class of people. And so once the proletariat takes you know, power of the state, the proletariat does not become the proletariat because that antagonism, you know, the proletariat doesn't exist without the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie does not exist without the proletariat. But once the proletariat, you know, ceases power of the state, it no longer becomes a proletariat. And therefore the bourgeoisie no longer has any sort of power and thus falls ...as a class of people. And i also like to point out the idea of withering away. That the state, you know, the withering away of the state is a gradual process. Contrary to what the anarchists believe in the abolition of the state. Ultimately, the goal is the abolition of the state. But these methods aren't, you know, the practicality... Of a spontaneous revolution, their planned revolution, planned insurrection. The idea and concept is that the proletariat is to gradually take hold of the state, own the means of production, and all property seized in the name of the working class, and ultimately wither away that antagonism into a free class. ...free state and free money society. A free society, if I might say. Ultimately, you know, being free of such... uh, ...repression. And ultimately, people take... uh, Engels' ideas... ...especially, you know, of the withering away of the state... ...out of context. And ultimately, think and believe... That, you know, without maintaining the productive forces of capitalism and without maintaining the relations of production, the state cannot, you know, wither away. Society can't move to socialism. But ultimately, what we see in places like China, where ultimately they maintain a tight grip of a bourgeois class while maintaining the productive forces of capitalism. It does this very successfully and it maintains a worker dominated society where the ultimate, you know, the Com- the communist party of China ultimately keeps it, uh, maintaining its goal of socialism, you know, uh, with, with Chinese characteristics and, uh, you know, not everything has to be do- so dogmatic as marx himself has uh labeled you know not everything you know conditions material conditions change you know material conditions evolve rapidly and ultimately you know marx's material conditions of you know the 1840s 1860s are a lot different than that of the 21st century but ultimately what marx you know examined in you know his three volumes of Capital was that of the uh, the laws of motion of capitalism and these laws are constant regardless of any stage of development that capitalism is whether it be you know 18 19th century uh laissez-faire capitalism or that of modern day uh welfare capitalism The laws of motions are constant. And ultimately, that's what we must take in consideration as Marxists, the laws of motion of capitalism. But there's different material realities that we must assess using these laws of motions and understanding, uh, you know, the dynamic and the the perplexity of the current system. And ultimately, our goal is, you know, to put our ideas into practice and we must constantly study the current material reality in that we want to put our theory into practice and to make it a real living concept and essentially in the first place uh, you know Lenin talks about how Engels uh, becomes an integral part of socialist thought among modern socialist parties Unlike the anarchist doctrine of the abolition of the state, according to Marx, the state withers away. To emasculate Marxism in such a manner is to reduce it to opportunism, for such an interpretation only leaves the hazy conception of a slow, even, gradual change, free from leaps and storms, free from revolution. The current popular conception, if one may say so, of the withering away of the state undoubtedly means a slurring over, if not a negation, of revolution. Yet, such an interpretation is the crudest distortion of Marxism, which is advantageous only to the bourgeoisie. In point of theory, it is based on a disregard for the most important circumstances and considerations pointed out in the very passage summarizing Engels' ideas, which we have just quoted in full. In the first place, Engels, at the very outset of his argument, says that, in assuming state power, the proletariat by that very act puts an end to the state as the state one is not accustomed to reflect on what this really means. Generally, it is either ignored altogether or it is is part—it uh, is considered as a piece of Hegelian weakness on Angles' part. As a matter of fact, however, these words express the experience of one of the great, greatest proletarian revolutions, which is the Paris Commune of 1871, of which we shall speak in greater detail in its proper place. As a matter of fact, Engels speaks here of the destruction of the bourgeois state by the proletarian revolution, which the words above its withering away refers to the remains of proletarian statehood after socialist revolution. The bourgeois state does not wither away, according to Engels, but is put an end to by the proletariat in the course of the revolution. What withers away after the revolution is the proletarian state or semi-state. So, ultimately, this isn't a ploy, you know, of the withering away of the state to delegitimize revolution. Because revolution is the ultimate aim of, you know, proletarian revolution and the proletarian seas of the state apparatus. Revolution, Constant revolution is the ultimatum to the withering away of the state. We put an end to... The rule of the bourgeois, the bourgeois state, and wither away the proletarian state after the productive forces and the relations of production are stable to socialist doctrine. Secondly, the state is a special repressive force. This splendid and extremely profound definition of anglicis is given by him here with complete lucidity. It follows from this that the special repressive force of the bourgeoisie for the suppression of the proletariat of the millions of workers by a handful of the rich must be replaced by a special repressive force of the proletariat for the suppression of the bourgeoisie, the dictatorship of the proletariat. It is just that this that constitutes the destruction of the state as the state. It is just this that constitutes the act of the seizure of the means of production in the name of society. And it is obvious that such a substitution of one, proletarian, special repressive force, for another, bourgeois, special repressive force, can in no way take place in the form of a withering away. So ultimately, again, with a, per- with a proletarian state, the special repressive force of the bourgeoisie for their suppression of the proletariat of the millions of the of millions of workers by the handful of the top 1% must be replaced by a repressive force of the proletarian for the suppression of the bourgeoisie which is the dictatorship of the proletariat and so ultimately once the proletariat takes hold of you know the state apparatus it isn't like the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeois and the reactionaries aren't going to fight back to retake possession of the state apparatus. Ultimately, we must repress the reactionaries and the bourgeois, uh, you know, repressive force that tries to take its power back. And so that's why the dictatorship of the proletariat is necessary to the transition from capitalism to socialism. Because how else will the working class fight back against reactionaries and bourgeoisie? Uh, you know, mercenaries who seek to, you know, fight back for power and to, you know, regain the power it once had and, you know, the monopoly on violence it once had prior to the, the, the proletarian revolution. Thirdly, as to the withering away or more expressively and colorful, colorfully as to the state becoming dormant, Engels refers quite clearly and definitely to the period after the seizure of the means of production by the state in the name of society, that is, after the Socialist Revolution. We all know that the political form of the state at the time is complete democracy, but it never enters the, he- the head of any of the opportunists who shamelessly distort Marx, that when Engels speaks here of the state withering away or becoming dormant, he speaks of democracy. At first sight, this seems very strange, but but it is unintelligible only to one who has not reflected on the fact that democracy is also a state and that, consequently, democracy will also disappear when the state disappears. The bourgeois state can only be put an end to by a revolution. The state in general, i.e. most complete democracy, can only wither away. Fourthly, having formulated his famous proposition that the state withers away, Engels at once explains concretely that this proposition is directed equally against the opportunists and the anarchist. In doing this, however, Engels puts in the first place that conclusion from his proposition about the withering away of the state, which is directed against the opportunists. One can wager that out of every 10,000 persons who have read or heard about the withering away of the state, 9,990 do not know at all or do not remember that Engels did not direct his conclusions from this proposition against the anarchist alone. And out of the remaining 10, probably 9 do not know the meaning of a people's free state, nor the reason why an attack on this watchword contains an attack of on the opportunists. This is how history is written. This is how a great revolutionary doctrine is imperceptibly adulterated and adapted to current Philistinism. The conclusion drawn against the anarchists has been repeated thousands of times, vulgarized, Perangued about in its crudest fashion possible until it has acquired the strength of a prejudice, whereas the conclusion drawn against the opportunist has been hushed up and forgotten. The People's Free State was a demand in the program of the German Social Democrats and their current slogan in the 70s. This is the 1870s, not 1970s. Just so you know. Sorry. But... There is no political substance in this slogan other than a pompous middle-class circumlocation of the idea of democracy, and so far as it referred in a lawful manner to a democratic republic. Engels was prepared to justify its use at times for, from a propaganda uh, point of view. But the slogan was opportunist for it only for it not only expressed an exaggerated view of the attractiveness of bourgeois democracy, but also a lack of understanding of the socialist criticism of every state in general. We are in favor of a democratic republic as the best form of the state for the proletariat under capitalism. But we have but we have no right to forget the wage slavery is the lot of the people, even in the most democratic bourgeois republic. Furthermore, every state is a special repressive force for the suppression of the oppressed class. Consequently, no state is either free or a people state. Marx and Engels explained this repeatedly to their party comrades in the 70s. Fifthly, in the same work of Engels from which everyone remembers... Sorry. (laughs) For, for which everyone remembers his argument on the withering away of the state, there is also a disquisition on the significance of a violent revolution. The historic analysis of its role becomes, with angles, a ver- veritable uh, panegyric on violent revolution. Panegyric. I think it's panegyric. I- I'm sorry if I fumbled that. Uh, This, of course, no one remembers to talk or even to think of the importance of this idea is not considered good form by contemporary socialist parties, and in the daily propaganda and agitation among the masses, it plays no part whatever. Yet it is indissolubly bound up with the withering away of the state in one harmonious whole. Here's Angles' argument. Quote, That force, however, plays another role other than that of a diabolical power in history. A revolutionary rule... That, in the words of Marx, it is the midwife of every old society which is pregnant with the new. That it is the instrument which, with whose aid social movement forces its way through and shatters the dead, fossilized political forms. Of this there is not a word in her durung. It is only with sighs and groans that he admits the possibility that force will perhaps be necessary for the overthrow of the economic system of exploitation, unfortunately, because all use of force, forsooth, demoralizes the person who uses it, and this in spite of the immense moral and spiritual impetus which has resulted from every victorious revolution, and this in Germany where a violent coalition, which indeed may be forced on the people, would at least Have the advantage of wiping out the servility which has permeated the nation, the national consciousness, as a result of the humiliation of the Thirty Years' War. And this Parsons' mode of thought, lifeless, insipid, and impotent, claims to impose itself on the most revolutionary party which history has known. So, usually, um, when Marxism is adulterated to become opportunism, the substitution of selecticism for uh, dialectics is the best method of deceiving the masses. It gives an illusory uh, illusory uh, satisfaction. It seems to take in all accounts all sides of the process, all the tendencies of development, all the contradictory uh, factors, and so forth, whereas in reality it offers no consistent and revolutionary view of the process of social development at all. We have already said above and shall show more fully later that the teaching of Marx and Engels regarding the, in- the inevitability of a violent revolution refers to the bourgeois state. It cannot be replaced by a proletariat, it cannot be replaced by a proletarian state, the dictatorship of the proletariat through withering array, but as a general rule, only through a violent revolution. The necessity of systematically fostering among the masses this and just this point of view about violent revolution lies at the root of the whole of Marxism and Engels' teaching. The replacement of the bourgeois by the proletarian state is impossible without violent revolution. The abolition of the proletarian state, i.e., of all states, is only possible through withering away. Marx and Engels give, gave a full and concrete exposition of these views in studying each revolutionary situation separately, in analyzing the lessons of the experience of each individual revolution. We now pass to this, undoubtedly the most important part of their work. And ultimately, that wraps up Chapter 1 of State and Revolution. It's a lot to uh, digest for uh, a Chapter 1. And uh, I think we get the basic premise. You know, obviously, uh, we recognize the uh, necessity for violent revolution, uh, for the working class, the uh, revolutionary proletariat class, to overthrow the bourgeois class. To overthrow the dictatorship of the bourgeois and instill the dictatorship of the proletariat. And from there, it must repress the bourgeois from ever retaining power. And once uh, we get, once the proletarian subordinates the bourgeois class, it no longer is the proletarian class and class antagonism is nullified, and ultimately, the state then begins its gradual process of withering away, for it has no longer a class of people to exploit and repress. This is the JGM Show. I'm Jacobin, and thanks for tuning in. Chapter two will be on the experiences of 1848 and 1851. This will be about the revolutions of 1848, their failures, uh, and uh, what Marx and Engels assessed and analyzed from these failures. Make sure you subscribe either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and uh, I'll see you in the next episode. Peace.